Hello, it's Alice. You are listening to a free episode of Drum Tower. To listen every week, you'll need to be an Economist subscriber. For a free trial, click on the link in the show notes or search online for Economist Podcast Plus. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Economist. China's decades of miraculous growth were powered by migrant workers. But those workers have families, and all too often, they've had to leave them behind when they head to jobs in factories and in the big cities. By the UN's latest count, in 2020, 67 million Chinese children were left behind, often in villages with their grandparents or in small-town boarding schools. These days, a new experimental policy is helping some migrants to bring their children with them. I went to the city of Yiwu in Zhejiang province to see how this policy is working. I'm Alice Su, The Economist Senior China Correspondent, and I'm here with my co-host, our Beijing Bureau Chief, David Rennie. This week, we're asking, are cities starting to see migrants differently? And could that mean a better future for left-behind children? This is Drum Tower. From The Economist. David, hi, how's it going in Beijing? Uh, Not too bad. I guess everyone's getting ready for Spring Festival. It's kind of late this year, which has slightly thrown me. I'm not used to a mid-February Spring Festival. Are you you going crazy? Is Gary going to have a new costume? Oh, actually, I think he is. My husband and I were just talking about how we wanted to get a dragon outfit for him because it's the year of the dragon. It's a long year. (laughs) Yeah, Gary doesn't know what's about to hit him. I know. I will definitely send photos if we manage to find the right outfit for him. Is he a dignified corgi? Does he object to being dressed up or is he quite chill with these things? Um, I dressed him up for Christmas. I put like a little sash on him and he didn't seem to notice. <laughs> He's an indifferent, <laughs> indifferent, yeah, indifferent. dog. Yeah. Once again, the cats would, I think, kill me if I tried dressing them up as anything. It's amazing that it's already Spring Festival again. It reminds me of last year when we made an episode where you went on a very crowded train all the way across China and talked to all these people who were heading home for, you know, their only trip home in a year for many of them. As you know better than I, Alice, Spring Festival is kind of Christmas and Thanksgiving all rolled into one. It's the one time where you really have to try and go home to see your family. And that's a wonderful, happy occasion. But For those migrant workers who may not see their own families, their own children, for the rest of the year, it's also a really tense time. I remember that in that episode about my train ride across southern China, we actually played some clips of a really, really powerful documentary about parents going home and really struggling to connect with their kids in the village. 
Right. And that film, which is called Last Train Home, there are all these scenes where these parents, they're finally back home because they spend most of the year working very far away from their hometowns. But now they're back, they're with their kids. But then it's really awkward and kind of sad because they don't have a relationship with their children and they just don't really know how to talk to them. There's some really moving interviews with the children, too. It was a really well-made documentary. Let's watch one of those interviews with one of the children together. Oh, yeah, it's really sad. It's the scene where the daughter is like walking through the fields in the village and she says, my parents left for work and they show care by sending money home, but they're hardly ever around. And she says, you know, by now I'm used to it and I don't think it really matters whether they're here or not. And if I remember rightly, spoiler alert, she then gets her revenge by working in a factory herself and kind of dashing her parents' hopes that she might get a better education and avoid their fate. And this is a big deal, right? I mean, 67 million kids currently living apart from at least one of their parents who's a migrant worker, according to UNICEF. And that number's actually been growing in recent years. And there's a ton of evidence that it's just not a great start for a lot of those kids. Yeah, and this is a really well-known but tragic problem in China, right? I mean, I think we've all heard of the term left-behind children, but recently I was really struck reading some reports about just how vulnerable these kids are. There's this NGO in Beijing that does surveys of left-behind children, and they reported 9 in 10 said they suffered emotional abuse, 6 in 10 suffered physical harm, close to 1 in 3 had been sexually abused. And so I was really surprised by the severity of how these kids can be exploited. And it makes it incredibly sensitive. You know, when I went to Iwu, this city, to look at their reform policies, which are going to make it easier for families to live together, one of the first people I bumped into, a sort of 60-something grandmother pushing grandkid in the swings, and so I went to kind of talk to her. But you have to be so sensitive because, of course, turns out that she was a migrant worker when she was younger and she didn't see her own kids. And on the one hand, I wanted to ask her how that worked for her family. But on the other hand, you don't want to say to someone, did you ruin your kids' lives? Were you a bad mother? You know, these are real people's lives that you're kind of bustling in on as a reporter. Yeah, and of course, most of them, they make those choices in hopes of providing a better future for their kids. That's right. And this particular grandmother, she's called Ms. Tang, she's from Hunan, a poor rural province, Chairman Mao's home province. She was straight up that her own children were left behind children and she didn't see them very often, but that she explained it. People didn't question that choice in those days. There were just very, very different expectations about what a parent's job was beyond going to work and sending money home. So I can hear you asking Miss Tang, you know, what was it like when your kids were little? And she says we were farmers, so, you know, we'd be farming at home, but then we would also go out for work. And you asked her, how many times did you see your kids every year? And she said, well, we're mostly apart. And maybe we'd go back for National Day, which is in October, and then another time for Spring Festival. So basically twice a year. Yeah, and that has all kinds of emotional effects, but also economic effects. There's lots and lots of study evidence that kids brought up by grandparents in the countryside, you know, they don't get talked too much as babies. That has a knock-on effect when they go to local rural schools, which often weren't great. It's so much harder for even the smartest kids born in a village to get to 
university, any university, certainly a really good university. And so you see some of those absolute inequalities that are still a blight in China start with that well-meaning decision by a parent to leave the village and try and earn much more money by going to a coastal city to work in a factory or something. And then, of course, there are systemic challenges, right? It's not just that a lot of these parents don't have the money or the time to bring their kids with them. It's also because China has this hukou system, household registration. We've talked about it before. Essentially, it ties a person's access to social services like education and healthcare to their place of birth. So even if a lot of these migrant kids followed their parents to the big city, they wouldn't be allowed to go to the same schools as the city kids. Yeah, so that's why I went to Iwu, is it's really a story about hukou reform. Now, that sounds horribly dry, but these are real people's lives. And the big thing that listeners need to know about your hukou is that you can work in a city legally and you can live in a city, but the one thing that is really, really hard is bringing your kids to live with you, certainly once they get a bit bigger, once they get out of primary school and want to take eventually university entrance exams. And so that two-class system where rural kids had to basically stay back in the countryside is just a massive issue. It was introduced decades ago, basically because Chairman Mao and the Communist Party feared that hungry peasants would start crowding into cities. And now, for all sorts of reasons that we're going to discuss, cities are actually really starting to dismantle that system for the first time in a way that will really help families live together. And so when I met Ms Tang, that grandmother who's pushing her grandkid in the swing next to the brand new school in Iwu, her grandkids are living a totally different life to the one that her kids knew. Now they're all in the same place. And I asked her, was that important to your children, to have their own children, your grandchildren, living with them? Wow, David, you went for the awkward question. <laughs> um, I can hear you asking Miss Tong if her kids want their kids by their side. And she's like, yeah, of course, like it's more convenient for school that way. And then you said, is it also because they had a hard time growing up because they couldn't see their parents? And she's like, well, probably more or less, but I don't know. And that's not something I'm, I'm going to go find out. And she kind of laughs. I know it was a really painful moment, but I sort of felt I had to ask. And that kind of awkward laugh is, you know, in China, you've, you've kind of really gone somewhere difficult when you get that kind of awkward laugh, don't you? It's a bit personal. Yeah. Yeah. And I tried to ask her whether she felt that the reason that she couldn't bring her kids with her when she was a migrant worker, when she was still working, was because big cities didn't welcome families with migrant children. And she was really honest. She sort of said, actually, that didn't seem to be our kind of role, our responsibility, our job. Yeah, so she's saying, well, that was back in the 80s. We didn't even think about this. We were just focused on making money, keeping our families alive. We didn't even think about bringing kids to our side to study. It just didn't cross our minds. But now everything is different. And David, what did she mean by that? Does she mean that nowadays the younger people have different expectations? I think that's right. And it's kind of touching the way that actually she was reluctant to talk too much about how young people thought about how to raise a family. She kept saying, oh, that's for the younger generation to tell you. You know, I'm just the grandmother. 
she was kind of almost sort of diffident about her role. But although you can hear from the grandkid, you know, happily in the background that she's the linchpin of this family and she's doing a lot of the childcare. She actually has four grandchildren in two families, two grown-up children. They all live in the same place, Iwu. So they get to have three generations all together. Yeah, which, as she explained to us, was unthinkable. People didn't even imagine it was possible, let alone want it. So what has made that possible? What kinds of policy reforms are happening? So the simple version is that cities like Iwu, all over Zhejiang, and this is also happening in some other provinces now, they're basically letting migrant workers send their kids to city schools all the way through the school system without buying a house and without having the kind of the full residence papers for that city, without that huko. And you can now even rent a house and just show that you're working there legally and paying social security contributions. It's a giant change. And it's really kind of startling. You know, I was first in China as a journalist a quarter of a century ago, and it would have been unthinkable for big, rich cities to be encouraging kind of low-level migrant workers to bring their kids with them to the city. It was seen as a kind of burden, as a problem, if those kids came. Yeah, because for the longest time, China had this overpopulation problem. And in particular, the cities didn't want to have too many migrants coming in and bringing their kids. But now we're in a different stage, right? China's population is actually shrinking and some cities are shrinking. And this is actually quite a big problem. That's right. And you'll remember, Alice, last year we were doing episodes about some of these cities that are shrinking really fast. So Yichun or uh, Hergang, way up in the kind of the cold northeast of the country because they got dying state-owned industries, they're losing young people. And even rich cities are now realizing that kind of giving people bonuses to have more babies just isn't working. Yeah. And in fact, this crisis is continuing, right? In 2023, the population shrank for the second time in a row, as you and I saw in China's latest numbers for babies born. Last year, there were 9 million babies, but the entire population is 1.4 billion. That's right. And to put that in context, just eight years ago, the total number of babies born in China was double the number born last year. So it is just falling off a cliff. So it makes sense then that some cities in China are competing for the kids who've already been born because hopefully they will stay and become working adults. Basically, the reality is that no government on earth seems to be able to really persuade people to have more babies than they want to have. And that's certainly true in China, even all the sort of nagging and bossing of women to have more kids. And so we're now in a competition for the kids that are already out there. And David, do you think this might also change the situation for left-behind children? Logically, but that's one of the things I wanted to find out. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So Alice, I went to Iwu for this story and Pretty well, all of the listeners out there have something from Iwu, either made or sold there in their homes right now. Yeah, I love Iwu, actually. I've been there for quite a few reporting trips. It's like every time there is something to say about the supply chain, you need to go to Iwu because it is this city known for 
As you know, David, these gigantic malls filled with all kinds of gadgets and trinkets, like just rows and rows of Christmas ornaments or fake Christmas trees or imitation Barbies or Make America Great Again hats, all the random stuff that might appear in your house that are made in China, there's probably 10,000 stalls selling them in Yiwu. That's right. Yeah, journalists go there to work out who's going to be the next American president based on, you know, who has the most merch on selling these giant wholesale malls. Yeah, exactly. And I really like going there because it is an import-export city. There are a lot of traders there, so it's much more diverse. I used to always go to get some good Middle Eastern food when I was there. And people tend to be quite open to talking because they're more used to seeing foreigners around. I had an outstanding Middle Eastern lunch. Oh. <laughs> Very good fatbread. Unusually good hummus. At you? Yeah, yeah, it was a winner. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but David, you didn't go there just to eat, right? You went there to investigate this new hukou policy. That's right. So this is a reform that's happening around the whole surrounding province, Zhejiang, except for the capital, Hangzhou. But Yiwu is really going for it. You can see just the sheer amount of money they're investing in things like building new schools from scratch, hiring high quality teachers, really throwing money at this challenge of how do we persuade the migrant workers who are already in Yiwu to send for their children from the village and bring them to live in the city and raise them as city people. And I asked a bunch of locals and migrants whether this was creating tensions, because, you know, you'll remember, Alice, that often one of the kind of sad aspects of writing a story about migrants in China is that a lot of big city residents, they're not that keen on sharing public services. They worry about crowded buses or not getting their own kids into school. Actually, Iwu, because so many people in Iwu are from somewhere else, I think more than half the population are from somewhere else. It's actually quite an open city and people were pretty positive and certainly very aware of this new policy. So tell me who you met and what they thought. Well, it's almost easier just to describe where I went. So I went to one of those giant, giant malls and I kind of chose one almost at random. This was a mall that sells stationery. So, you know, it's where the world's stationery shops get kids' diaries and pens and football sticker albums and photograph albums, you know, all that stuff. And outside the mall, there are people at the very, very bottom of the economic food chain who can't even afford the rent on one of the stalls inside. So these were three guys, all from the same village, who basically sit on electric scooters with these plastic crates, and they sell price stickers to the traders inside the mall. And that is how they scrape a living. And they were three fathers one in his 50s, one in his 40s, one in his 30s. And they had different stories to tell about where their kids go to school. Okay, so three dads of three different generations, and they're all migrant workers, and they all have kids. Tell me more. I mean, are they taking advantage of this new policy? So the oldest of them, he actually didn't need the policy because, for various reasons, he already had his kids in local schools already in Iwu. But the middle father, Mr. Yang, He's a direct beneficiary of the new policy. So, Alice, you'll remember that for the longest time, because of these barriers, migrant workers, they had to send their children to these private schools for migrants, which were not very good. They're often quite expensive. Now, his situation is it's the same school, but now the school fees are basically almost all covered by the government. It's been turned into a public school. And he was quite interesting about why he thinks the authorities have done that. Okay, so I hear him telling you that it seems like 
basically the city wants to keep more outsiders, like more migrants, because when we come from the outside to come and work, you worry about your kids who are left at home and you want to bring them with you. And the main obstacle is education. That's right. And then the final father, the youngest one in his 30s, was a very useful kind of caution that this policy isn't going to transform everyone's lives because a lot of migrants, they live really rough lives. They live very precarious existences. Their income isn't fixed. They maybe share a dormitory with a bunch of people in it. It's not a good place to ring kids. And so Mr. Zhang, his 13-year-old daughter lives with his parents in his home village in Hunan near Lodi. He's not going to bring her. Oh, and I can hear him explaining to you. He says, we get off from work really late. Sometimes it's 11 p.m. or midnight or maybe even 1 or 2 a.m. So we just don't have time to take care of the kids here. Yeah, and then I fear I asked one of my kind of awkward questions again, because I said, do you think your daughter would prefer to be with her parents in Iwu? Oh, and he says, of course, she would prefer to be with her parents. And so, you know, as ever, it's a really important reminder that you just have to get out on the ground and talk to real people because these policies are important. You have to study the policy documents. But until you talk to people on the ground whose lives are kind of changed by them, you don't get the subtleties that, you know, not everyone is able to bring their kids. Not everyone wants to bring their kids. They don't feel they've got the stability. Yeah, like even though access to schools is a step forward, that's simply not enough for a lot of migrant parents who don't have the time or don't have the money and just don't have the capacity. Yeah, remember how little these three fathers are earning just selling their price labels from their crates. And some people are just kind of working out how to, I mean, not game the system, but how to play the system. I talked to one mother who's from a rural province, Hainan, who figures she might send her daughter home when it comes time to take university entrance exams, simply because the scores you need to pass are lower back home than they are in a rich province like Zhejiang. Yeah, and I know that in recent years, there's been a lot of talk too about how not everyone wants to give up their rural hukou, because there are some benefits to that too, like having land that you can rely on and that you can even make some income from. That's right. And that is one of the big advantages of this reform, that you don't have to choose. You can keep your village land, you can keep your village registration, but you can actually send your kid to school in the city, Iwu, where you work. So, David, we talked about how, you know, not everyone can use this policy because they have other constraints. But even the people who are using the policy, I mean, are they all feeling good about it? What did people tell you about how much of a difference it was making in their real lives? People are clear that it's making a difference. And, you know, like that father we heard, he's no longer paying expensive school fees for a not very good school. But people are also pretty cynical about some aspects of it. Certainly, when I went inside that giant mall, said goodbye to the three dads from Hunan, and went and talked to women on their own manning these little stalls where wholesalers come in and buy stationery. I asked all of them about, so can your kid go to the best schools in Iwu, even though you're not from here? And clearly, no, there are still barriers. So one of the people I spoke to, Ms. Chen, she's from another city in the same province, Wenzhou. She's surrounded by all these children's stationery. She's got her laptop open. And she explained why actually her kid can't go to the very best school in Iwu. Mm-hmm. 
那你如果想要排在前面的条件就是你要有房有户啊。Okay, so I can hear Miss Chen's very realistic answer. She says, actually, in the actual implementation, it's not exactly how they write it in the documents. It's not like anyone can go to any school. There's still conditions. Like if you want to go to a good school in a good district, you still do need to buy a house. You still need to have a huko. It's like you have to join the queue and you have to be at the top of a list if you want to get your kid in. That's right, because if you imagine, like the best school in the city may have like three hundred places that year. And they can fill all three hundred with people who own houses and who have had a evil huko for a long time, and they do get priority. And the theory is that you don't have to own a house, you don't have to live there for years, but by the time you get to those people with that theoretical right, they've already filled up all three hundred places in that good school. So that's what she's describing: is just these barriers. And you know, some people paid really, really premium prices to buy an apartment. In the catchment area, right next to a really good school, and actually they're not delighted if people can just rent a place and get their kid in the same school. So there's lots of wrinkles to this. Yeah, I can imagine some people complaining, like we put up so much money, and now you're just going to give the same opportunity to someone else. Yeah, because you might pay like twenty percent more to have bought an apartment so you can send your kid to a good school. So David, you took an up close look at what's happening in Ewu, but is this policy catching on in other cities or in other provinces? So there are limits to this reform, and one of them is that it's really expensive. So Ewu is a rich city; it's got lots of businesses, lots of taxpayers, and it is spending hundreds of millions of yuan, uh, so tens of millions of US dollars, every year to build new schools, to pay the fees of kids that used to go to migrant private schools, and not every city can afford that. Yeah, I think a lot of. Poorer areas that we've spoken about on Drum Tower, like in China's Northeast, they're not going to have extra funds like that, especially post-pandemic. Yeah, and then there's another issue, which is the most important larger cities in China, the kind of Beijing, Shanghai, those top-tier cities. They are still resisting this kind of reform, and even actually the province where I was, the capital of the province, Hangzhou, is not part of the reform. Although there are scholars who will tell you that the way that the birth rates are falling. Actually, even those kind of big, proud cities like Beijing and Shanghai, they're going to have to align themselves with these reforms. Huh? Wait, tell me more about that. You mentioned that Chinese scholars are saying this. Is it only because of the demographic crisis, or are there other trends? It's a whole bunch of things coming together that mean that cities are in a kind of competition with one another, and that is changing the way that even the biggest, proudest, most exclusive cities are thinking. So I spoke to this really brilliant professor Lu Ming, who's an economist in Shanghai. So you know Shanghai, where you used to live, Alice, perhaps the proudest, richest city in China, but they've built a bunch of new towns outside the city, which were meant to be a million people each, and actually the population of those is not doing so well. And you know Guangzhou down south is worried about competition from Shenzhen. So suddenly. This idea that China is a country where everyone worries about having too many people and there's no room, everything is changing. Suddenly, that line, you know, rentai bo is becoming rentai shala. You know, there's a competition for people out there, and that is changing a whole bunch of policy thinking. Yeah, and David, you said rentai bo le, like there are too many people. That was a problem in the past, but now it's rentai shala. There are too few people. Yeah, and there's other advantages for a city that wants to bring kids in at the very start of their lives, rather than bring them in as migrants when they're kind of you know eighteen, nineteen, or twenty. So Professor Lu, he was describing how the model in the old days, where someone would arrive maybe eighteen years old and work in a factory in a dormitory in a coastal city, as we've talked about in other episodes, that is changing now. The growth is in service sectors, 
And actually, if that's where your growth is coming from, then there's a real advantage for a city in raising those workers from a very young age at local schools. Imagine old people's homes. China's going to need a lot of old people's homes as it grays and gets older. You want to have people working in those homes who understand city folk, who understand their ways, you know, how they think, how they talk. And it's much easier if they've lived in the city their whole life and grown up as city folk. And so there's going to be all kinds of incentives for cities to bring in workers from a very young age. And David, when you were talking to these migrants who are now in demand and whose children are now in demand in the cities, how does that make them feel? It's like for such a long time, they were seen as second class and, and unwanted. Do they have a sense that now we're being more valued? Like now things are really going to be looking up for us? That's right. And so I thought it'd be interesting to make sure I talked to at least some migrants at the very top of the economic ladder in Iwu. So I went to one of the best schools in the city at pickup time and met a professional from the northeast of the country, Mr. Yu, who has had an Iwu Huko, that registration for years, in fact. And so his son goes to this very good school. But he was clear that in general, the authorities, instead of thinking of migrants as a kind of problem, they have to think about how do we help them realize their potential. And we talked about all of the kind of the changes, you know, making it easier to send your kids to school, the changes to health insurance, all those public services that are now more open. And he was clear that this is kind of an investment for the city in the overall economy. Yeah, I can hear Mr. Yu telling you that he says, you know, you're a scholar, maybe you've researched this more and you know more about the policies and the systems. We law by seeing like ordinary people, we don't really follow that. But we do have this feeling that there are, of course, challenges, contradictions that come with development, but one by one they are being solved. And of course, if you're a worker, a migrant worker, then if your worries are being solved, then nothing will be really holding you back anymore. And David, what does he mean by that? He means, you know, if you're no longer worrying about, I can't send my kids to local school. If we get sick, we can't access local hostels without paying a fortune for healthcare. If you take those worries away, then people can just get on with making a living, with starting a business, with being entrepreneurs. And that Iwu, he sense, is really getting to grips with that. And of course, there's a painful irony that he is originally from Dongbei, from the northeast, that same region that we've done episodes from, you know, Hegang, Yichun. They're losing people and they're going to carry on losing people because this is a good news story for the families in Iwu. But this competition is going to have winners, but it's also going to have losers. And some of those shrinking cities are probably going to keep shrinking or their shrinking is going to accelerate with these kinds of reforms. So, David, if we go back to the question we asked when we first began, are cities changing the way that they treat and they view migrant workers? And does that mean potentially a better future for left behind children? I mean, to me, it sounds like the answer is yes. This policy, you know, it's not perfect. There's a lot of room for improvement. It may not be applicable across the whole country, but it does sound like there is some positive change. And I think that's very encouraging for me to hear, especially because we talk so much about all the different crises that China is facing. The demographic crisis is one of them. But in some ways, if this one crisis then creates opportunity for improvement on other issues, then it's a very good thing. 
Yeah, I mean, that phrase that we, we used before, there are just too many people in this country, you know, from when I first became a journalist in China, every time you did a story about why is it so hard for disabled people to get a job in China? Why is it so hard for, you know, this inequality to be tackled? People would kind of shrug. It was like, you know, there are so many people. Why are we going to kind of bust a gut to help that problem get solved? You know, there's plenty of other people who can do that job. We're not going to make any real effort to help them, this particular individual, live out their potential. And so for the longest time, as cities began to kind of reform these hukou systems, you saw like rich cities saying, okay, well, if you've got a PhD in computer science from MIT, then we'll give you a hukou. Or, you know, if you can afford a million dollar apartment, we'll give you a hukou. And then it was like, well, if you're a graduate, if you've got a master's, you know, now, because they've got a real crisis with the birth rate falling off a cliff, you're right, Alice, that this is a potentially good thing coming out of a real challenge for the government, which is they're actually realizing that a baby in a village, you don't know their future. Maybe they're not going to get a PhD, but they have value. And if you're smart, you need to give them the best shot at living out their full potential. And that has not been the case in kind of boom era reform China for the longest time. Thank you for listening to Drum Tower. And thank you especially to Tom from Singapore, Jason in Minnesota, and Roberto, who listens from Arnhem in the Netherlands. We love reading your feedback. Please do keep sending us more at drum at economist.com. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alize, Jean-Baptiste, and Jia Hao Chen produced this episode. Sound design is by Wei Dong Lin. Drum Tower's music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.